Man, it's good to see so many people in church today. It's awesome. Some new folks, some folks coming back for the first time in a long time, and it uh, just feels like every week there's some new faces looking back. So we celebrate that. That's exciting. Uh, kind of a funny story. We, we do a little pre-service meeting to make sure we're all on the same page. And we were talking about how we've, we've been talking about freedom and worship all year. Like, you really are free. If you want to stand, stand. If you want to sit, sit. Even when we invite you to stand, if you'd rather sit, stay seated. And if we tell you to sit and you'd rather stand, stand up. And we noticed that in the first service, everybody stands. Like, as soon as somebody stands, everybody stands. And then in the second service, it's a little less so. And, and I just said, well, that must mean the first service are early risers. <laughs> I had a nickel going on whether you would laugh at that, and uh, it's mine. I, I get to keep my nickel, and I get somebody else's. So, um, but really, we do want freedom in worship. Uh, for me, it's just like, man, it's hard to sing some of these songs sitting down. I, I don't know about you, but feel free. Do what you want to do. Uh, the posture of your heart means so much more to God than whether you're standing or sitting. And so um, as we continue this series, that, that sermon bumper from uh, Psalm 25 that sort of transitions us from, from worship into continuing to worship through uh, looking at God's Word, uh, it doesn't include verse 1. And, and I thought, oh, I really want to share verse 1 to him because verse 1 of Psalm 25 really opens our series, and then this is the obey part. So verse 1 says, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. It's crystal clear. David is starting this psalm with that declaration that he has and is trusting God. And then out of that trust, out of that relationship with God, believing who God said he is, believing that God is who God said he is and that he'll do what he said he'd do. Then he says, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. He adds a request for instruction, for training. He has a desire to follow and obey this God that he trusts, this God that he's put his hope in. And he continues in verse 5, guide me in your truth and teach me. He wants to stay in step with the Spirit. He wants to be guided through life by God's Spirit, by God's teachings, by God's ways. And he ends with a reminder again, for you are my Savior. You are God my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. And I looked at that and I said, it's almost like it's a little trust and obey sandwich right there in Psalm 25, where trust is the bread. I put my trust in you right off the bat. And the end of verse 5, I believe in you. I'm putting my hope in you. You are God, my Savior. And right in the middle, the meat is the obedience. And so as we continue our series, trust and obey, uh, keep that in mind as you see that. Remind, be reminded that David starts that whole thing out with a declaration of his trust. And uh, we are in week two of a five-week sermon series titled Trust and Obey. Last week we got it all kicked off with a message titled Living by Faith. And uh, we celebrated 12 people being baptized and, and we looked at a uh, number of different scriptures, particularly Galatians chapter 2. And there was a verse in there that I encouraged people to, to memorize, to commit Galatians 2.20 to memory. Has anybody started working on that? A few people. Very good. Anybody want to come up, take the stage, grab a microphone, and recite it in front of God and these witnesses? I didn't think so. i tell you what, what was really cool in the first service, 
Uh, there was somebody from our Kids Way ministry that was in the back, and he heard that, and he said, well, I can memorize that. And he started working on it. He started memorizing. He came down at the end of the service and recited it to me. I said, you want to go up on stage next week? He said, I'll get back to you. So we might have that next week. I don't know. But uh, I really want to encourage you. Don't, don't breeze by that. Don't just be on to the next thing. Like Galatians 2.20, if you would memorize that and start to let that become foundational to your identity in Christ, and your experience of life with other people, I think it would be powerful. And it pointed us to this bottom line last week that, that Christ died for you so that you could live with him and live for him forever. Christ died for you so that you could live with him and live for him forever. Today, we're going to broaden our, our scope, broaden our view a little bit, and talk about trusting God together trusting God together. We have individual private faith, but we also have a corporate faith, and we are called to be in community. In fact, we were created for community. We were made for that. We were made to do life together, and the truth is we are better together. That the, the sum, like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Like one plus one plus one doesn't equal four when we're serving and trusting and obeying God together. One plus one plus one equals five or six or seven somehow because God fits us together in a way that magnifies what is happening and what is taking place. And so we're going to talk about trusting God together and we're going to look at, at some truths that David and Paul New. That's kind of the theme in this series. We're reading Psalms and we're reading Galatians in our Banding Together journals and in that reading plan. And if you're not sure what that's all about, talk to me after service. I would love to get one of those in your hands and, and help you understand how that works so that when you come to church on Sunday, you're going to hear a message on something you just read or something you're about to read. And today we get both. And and they both knew, both David and Paul knew that we were better together. Both David and Paul knew that we were created for community. And it's interesting, when you look at their lives as they're presented in Scripture, and you look at the things that they wrote, they didn't do anything alone. Neither David nor Paul did much of anything alone. They, they had people around them that were helping them to accomplish the mission that God had given them. You see David with his fighting men. And they're listed by name in first, or Second Samuel 23, right at the end of David's life. You see them, and they, they kind of get credits, like the end credits in a movie. They get credits. These were the people that worked with David, and there were people around David all of his life who helped him to accomplish the things that God set before him. And then you see Paul on his missionary journeys as they were recounted in Acts. He had people like Barnabas and Silas and Timothy that traveled with him and that did the work with him. They were his co-laborers in ministry. And at the end of almost every one of his letters, he's greeting people by name. He's saying, oh, make sure you say hi to so-and-so and greet them in the name of the Lord. They were crucial. They came when we needed. They, you know, he had people. He recognized that, that we were made for community and we're better together. And so we're going to start in Psalm 31, and we're going to look at kind of how David starts this psalm, focusing on his individual, private, personal faith with God and trust in God, and then he expands it and broadens it to all of us, to all of the people. And so uh, in Psalm 31, verses 1 and 14, we read these verses, "'In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness.'" And then verse 14, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are 
my God. He starts out with his individual, private, personal trust in God. He's taking refuge in God, meaning he's seeking protection from the Lord. And not only that, but he's trusting in God for deliverance. He's, he's putting his, his trust in God. In verse 14, he declares it. He declares it as simply and, and profoundly as you can, but I trust in you. All this other stuff is going on if you read the whole psalm. All this other stuff is going on, but he says, but I trust in you, O God. I trust in you, O Lord, and I say you are my God. And so my question at the beginning, do you trust him? Do you trust him first, or do you trust him when plan A, B, and C that you came up with didn't work? I'm guilty of that sometimes. It's like, oh, well, here's what I need to do. No, that didn't work. Okay, I'll try this. No, that didn't work. Oh, maybe I should see what God's word has to say about it. Maybe I should trust. Maybe I should pray. And so David is saying, I trust in you. He's reminding himself, but he's also making a declaration. I think there's power in reminding ourselves and declaring to ourselves, hey, you know, I trust in him. He's my God. But there's also power in telling others as well. When we make it known to others around us whose we are, that we're trusting God. There's power in that. There's accountability that comes through that. And there's the spreading of hope and courage and faith that comes when we declare who we trust. And the world's wringing its hands and trying to figure out what to do next. And we say, as David says here, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. There's power in that. And he continues, though, and, and by verse 19 and 20, he's, he's changing the pronouns from personal individual pronouns to corporate, public pronouns. He says in verse 19, how great is your goodness, he's speaking to God, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence, you hide them from the intrigues of men. In your dwelling, you keep them safe from accusing tongues. He's moving this out to a corporate faith, to a corporate trust, lived out in the public sphere in front of other people, in front of other men, other women, the people around them. They're seeking refuge in God together, and they're fearing God together. Is this fearing in verse 19? That doesn't mean that they're afraid of God. It means that they're reverencing and obeying and trusting Him and Him alone. And then verse 23 and 24, there's this corporate exhortation to love and faithfulness and strength and courage and hope. Listen to this. Love the Lord, all his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord or all you who trust in the hope. There's this corporate exhortation. You see, David was a king, and he knew that the best thing for his nation was if they were to trust God together, if they were to put their hope in God together, if they were to obey God together. And the nation expanded and the borders expanded and their influence in the world expanded under David to the peak, to the pinnacle in all of the history of Israel because they trusted him together, because they followed him together, because they obeyed him together. Through his leadership, through his influence, he led them to do that, to do it together, to do it not one-on-one individually, privately, but corporately and publicly as well. And so that sort of sets a foundation for us, these exhortations that David, the king, gives to his people. But we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at a passage of Scripture where Paul lays out God's vision for the church. And it's a vision of unity and alignment and one lineage, one family, one identity 
One set of clothes, that should get your attention. Like, imagine if we all wore the same clothes. Well, he kind of says that we do here. This is interesting. And no divisions whatsoever. Like, none. It's amazing. It's Galatians chapter 3. It's verses 26 through 28. And it speaks to the reality of the inclusion that we have in Christ and in God's family as believers, as those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so listen to this. I'll read all the way through verse 26 through 28, and then we'll walk back through them together. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, is he saying that we're, there's no more, there's only one gender, there's only one ethnicity, there's only one set of clothes, so to speak, and we're all just supposed to look and act and have everything the same? I don't believe so. There's a difference between unity and uniformity. What he's saying is that these hierarchies that we've created in the world are of no value in the kingdom of God. And so we'll look at each of them as we go through them, but he's saying that basically we all have one Father, Verse 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There's one Father. We're all spiritual and eternal brothers and sisters. It used to be a lot more common in churches that everybody referred to everybody as brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. And I think that was probably a good thing. I think there were some advantages to that. I remember uh, when Heather and I were really growing in our faith. And this was a while ago. It was about 15 years ago. We went to a big church on Sunday, and we kept getting invited to this smaller church by a guy that I worked with. His dad was the pastor. And we're like, well, we really love our church on Sunday morning. We're serving there. We're contributing there. We're, you know, really growing there. We didn't want to change anything, but he said, oh, well, we have a Sunday night service. I was like, Sunday night service? That was new to us. We've never been to a church with a Sunday night service. I know that's probably shocking to some of you. So we start going on Sunday night, and it was crazy because these people that could be our grandparents... We're calling us Brother Mark and Sister Heather, and it kind of grew on us, and we call them Sister Glenda and Brother Dave, and, and we just really were enveloped, and, and we would go almost every Sunday night, and after church, we'd all go to Wendy's and have supper together, and, and it was just this wonderful little subset of community, but everybody was your brother and everybody was your sister, whether they were younger than you or older than you, whether they were in different generations than you, it was brother this and sister that, and we all had one father. And it reminded us of that. And we all had one older brother, Jesus, and it reminded us of that, and we had this common identity. And I speak a lot about identity because identity really matters. There's all kinds of things you can put your identity in, all kinds of roles that this world offers you. You can, be, you can have your identity in your work, your profession, being such and such son or daughter of so-and-so, being a husband, being a wife, being a mother, being a father, all of those things are, are places that this world can try to get us to put our identity, and yet God says there's one identity that I want you to have that is first and foremost, above them all, and that is to be a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells. A beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells. It's an identity that's rooted in that which is unshakable, that we are his and he is ours. And that points us back to the, to the Galatians 2.20 passage. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's living in me. 
I'm a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells. And if that's true about me, and you've also been crucified with Christ, and he's living in you, then we're on the same field. I know I sit up here, and I talk a lot longer in service than you do, but we're on the same field as far as God is concerned, as far as the family of God is concerned. We're all equal. We're all one in Christ. We all have the same common identity. And that's true within the church, and that's where Paul is speaking. He's speaking specifically to within the body of Christ. And the issue that he was addressing between whether or not these Gentile converts had to be circumcised and had to obey the law, he's like leveling the playing field here. And he's saying, no, we're all one. It's not like you're a super Christian or there's super apostles or there's super anything. If you're in Christ, then you needed a Savior, and He became your Savior. So you're all equal in Christ. And if that's true within the church, then who are we to impose anything other than that outside the church? Because every single person you see outside the family of God is somebody that Jesus died for, somebody that Jesus died and is, is eagerly desiring that they would come into the family of God. So there's no hierarchies out there either. Like, we're all, we're all one in Christ. We all have one Father for those of us that are within the church, and we want to bring as many people that are outside the church into the church, into the family of God through faith in Christ. So that's verse 26. Verse 27 continues that thought and says, all of you who are baptized, I love that that worked its way in again because we celebrated a lot of baptisms last week, but all of you who are baptized into Christ are now clothed in Christ. You have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's what I talk about with one common wardrobe. And it doesn't mean that we all dress the same, but it means that Jesus Christ is as immediately recognizable in our attitude and our words and our actions as the clothes I'm wearing. And so just like every single person in this room can tell that I am wearing a white shirt, it's got thin blue and orange stripes, and a pair of dark blue jeans, you should be just as immediately recognizable in our daily lives out there and in here that we are followers of Jesus Christ, that we were baptized into Him and are now living in Him. He's as immediately recognizable in our lives as the clothes that we wear. Paul says something similar in Colossians 3, and I'm convinced that that's what he's saying. It's like it should be so obvious that you are believers. People shouldn't have to dig around. They shouldn't have to stalk you on social media. It should be just obvious. That's a believer. That's somebody who's been baptized into Christ. And then verse 28, we kind of have to camp out here a little bit because he's saying an awful lot. If there were three verses with three main points... Verse 28 has three main points in and of itself. In verse 28, he says, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that all one in Christ Jesus means that there are no worldly divisions, no hierarchies within the family of God. And he, he explains this three different ways. Neither Jew nor Gentile speaks to, to ethnicity or race or heritage. That that that's all the same in the kingdom of God. Yes, in the Old Testament, the, the nation of Israel was to be God's chosen nation, but now in the New Testament, like Peter says, you are a chosen people, all of you. You are a royal priesthood, all of you. You are a nation set apart for God to serve Him. And just the same as Paul is saying here, neither Jew nor Gentile, he's saying that race and ethnicity have no, they have no benefit to you in your standing before God. It's all Christ. 
It's all Christ. He's what makes us success, acceptable to God. He's what makes us righteous and having right standing. And what's interesting as I was thinking about that is Israel was always supposed to be a light to the nations. You go back into the Old Testament, right at the very beginning, when God calls Abraham, right? Abraham, the very first of the nation of Israel, and they all trace their lineage back to Abraham. This was a big thing for them. When he calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he says some very important things to him right at the beginning as he's making a covenant with Abraham. He says in Genesis 12, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And everybody heard that with a megaphone. And then he says in the second half of that verse, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. You're not just a reservoir to to try to get as much of God's blessing as possible. You're a river that it flows through you into the lives of others. And he continues that thought and even clarifies that thought in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And everybody heard that with a megaphone. But the second half of the verse is the missional side. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This was the idea from the very beginning, that Israel would be a light to the nations, that the nations, that the whole world would be blessed through this nation of Israel, and that they would go out and they would bring people in and they would draw people to God. It was missional and it was attractional. They were to live such holy lives and to have such an upright society that everybody would say, what is going on with those people? We want to know more about it. And they would ask them questions. they say, we worship the one true God. And they would enfold those people into the nation of Israel, into the people of God. And one of Satan's oldest tricks is to get us people, us human beings, to create little hierarchies and little divisions. And and these people are in, and these people are out, and these people are better, and these people are worse. And it's running rampant today. And it's been a part of the church's history, sadly, for the last 2,000 years. There's been ups and downs, and us and them, even within the church. And it should not be that way. Paul is saying clearly, there is no Jew or Gentile. You're all one. You're all one in Christ. Very, very important that we understand this. And one of my favorite things about the Wesleyan Church, as I've learned about the Wesleyan Church and as I've taught membership classes and those types of things, is this real reality that while most church denominations are the result of a split, where these people say you baptize by immersion, and these people say you sprinkle, or these people say this, and these people say that, and they split, and they say, okay, you do it your way, we'll do it our way. The thing I love about the Wesleyan Church is that it was a merger. The Wesleyan Church of today was a merger of two different denominations, the Wesleyan Methodist Church and the Pilgrim Holiness Church. And they said, man, we have so much in common. And we have some strengths that you don't have. And you have some strengths that we don't have. What if we got together and we merged into one denomination? I love that about the Wesleyan Church. I wish that there were more church denominations merging. I think that's a picture of God's design in heaven. And so there's neither Jew nor Gentile. That's the first point that he makes. The second is there's neither slave nor free. So if Jew and Gentile had to do with race and ethnicity, slave or free has to do with our socioeconomic standing, our social standing, our economic standing. There were slaves at this time. There were free people at this time. There were citizens. There were non-citizens. There were all these little hierarchies saying none of that matters in the kingdom of God. There is neither slave nor free. Your social economic standing has no bearing on your relationship with God or your rightness before God. And interestingly enough, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the people of God have always been told that those who have should share with those who do not have. Those who have enough to share 
should share with those who don't. In the Old Testament, it took the form of various offerings that were for the poor among you. It took the place of gleanings. They were told, don't harvest all the way to the edge of your field. Leave some on the edge of your field for those that do not have enough to eat to come along. Ruth is a great example of this. If you've heard the Old Testament story of Ruth, she's gleaning in Boaz's field. This is a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus was gleaning, was an alien from another country that was gleaning the fields of an Israelite who had property, who had enough, and they left some on the edge. Notice it wasn't taken from them by force and redistributed. It was a voluntary thing that you give offerings and gleanings, and special care and consideration was to be given by the widows or to the widows, and to the orphans, and to the alien who is among you. Like, this was God's design, that those who have enough would share with those who don't. And then we see it in the New Testament right from the very beginning, like the day of Pentecost. The Spirit falls, and at the end of chapter 2, what are they doing? They're selling their properties and giving to any as he had need, and the whole church is taking care of the whole church. Like, everybody's sharing with each other and caring for each other. And there was a recognition that, yeah, slave, free, whatever it may be, we're all slaves of one master. Paul introduced himself. You could make a case that he was the leader of the Christian church outside of Jerusalem. He introduced himself in all of his letters as a slave of Christ. He said, I've got, there's one master. We are all slaves of him. There are no social hierarchies in the kingdom of God. There are no economic hierarchies in the kingdom of God. And lastly, he says, nor is there male or female. And all he's saying there is the gender is of no benefit either. Male, female, we're all on level playing field with Jesus, with God, our Father. And this is one that has persisted for a long time as well. It's persisted within the church for a long time. And yet on that day of Pentecost, on Acts chapter 2, the Spirit falls and people are like, what is going on? And Peter stands up and he interprets the events for them. And this is recorded for us as Holy Scripture. And he says, here's what's going on. This is exactly what Joel said was going to happen. Way back in Joel chapter 2, He proclaimed that this would happen, and so we should read and see what Joel had to say. In Acts 2, 17 and 18, Peter records this for us, and it says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And they, all of them, Well, prophesy. What does prophesy mean? Prophesy means to speak for God to God's people. That's what prophesy is. It doesn't just mean that you talk about the future. It means that you speak the words of God to the people of God. And you say, I want to pour out my spirit on everyone. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. They're all going to be recipients of the spirit. They're all going to have a divine spiritual gift and a divine spiritual mission and divine spiritual service to offer to the body. And your gender is not going to be of any benefit to you. Sorry, guys. It seems like in most cases, it's men that get pushed to the front. And yet Paul is saying, no, it shouldn't be that way. It's not that way in the kingdom of God. And there's a powerful, powerful example of these very principles that plays itself out in John's gospel. And I hope you don't miss this. If you want some extra credit that doesn't involve getting up on a stage and reciting Scripture, if you want some extra credit that you can do at home this afternoon by yourself, I want you to read John chapter 3 
in John chapter 4. In John chapter 3, you might know this story, Nicodemus, a wealthy Jewish man, comes to Jesus at night because it's very dangerous for a wealthy Jewish man to be approaching Jesus and having a conversation with him, especially the kind of conversation that Nicodemus is having with Jesus. Ask him, what are you teaching? What is going on? What does it all mean? And you have the conversation, well, what does Jesus tell Nicodemus has to happen? You must be born again. You, Nicodemus, a wealthy Jewish man at the top of the ladder by all accounts, and even the three counts that Paul is giving us here. And Nicodemus leaves quietly by night. Now we have reason to believe that, Jesus, that Nicodemus did come around. Because at the end of John's gospel, it's Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea that are taking great risk, approaching Pilate, asking for Jesus' body and preparing his body for burial themselves at great personal risk. So I'm pretty sure Nicodemus came around. But what happens in John chapter 4? Jesus has a conversation with a woman at a well. Who was she? She was a poor Samaritan woman. As far from Nicodemus, the wealthy Jewish man, as you could possibly get, and they're both on the same playing field. His wealth, his Jewish heritage, his being a man was of no value. He still had to be born again. In her poverty, her lack of a Jewish heritage and her gender were of no detriment to her. In fact, she embraces the good news. She runs into the village and she tells everybody, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Slight exaggeration, but that doesn't matter. She was so excited that the gates of heaven had been thrown open to her. She wanted everybody to know. And you see those stories back to back. And if you really want to see this sort of played out. If you haven't watched The Chosen, it's a miniseries that was created and kind of released about a year ago, I believe. It's available on YouTube. You just search for The, the Chosen, um, and it's all these biblical stories that just get expanded and expounded upon and, and portrayed. And you come into the culture, and there's layers, but Number seven and number eight of season one, the last two of season one, deal with Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night and the woman at the well. And it's a really powerful conclusion to that first season. I would highly recommend you watch the whole thing. I've seen them a couple times. They're great. Yes, they take some liberties. Yes, they read between the lines. Do I think there are any abominable heresies? No, or I wouldn't be telling you to go and watch it. Maybe you'll find one. I don't, I hope not. But the reality is that, that the gates of heaven have been thrown open and all are welcome. And your race, your ethnicity, your social status, your economic status, your gender, they don't put you, give you a leg up over anybody. And they don't put you under anybody. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We're all gloriously different and unique. We're all representations of the image of God, gloriously different and unique, and yet we are all one. See, unity is not uniformity. It doesn't mean we all have to look and act and think and, and speak the same, but it means that we all have one common Father. We're all part of one family, and we're all in it together. And so our bottom line today is don't divide what Christ has unified. Don't divide 
what Christ has unified. And within the body, that's speaking within the body, as Paul was speaking within the body, he's like, don't create these divisions. Don't bring these hierarchies from the world into the church. They don't belong. Don't divide what Christ has unified. And I wrote a note as I went through this the last time this morning before the first service. I was like, well, for the people outside the church, when we leave these doors and we go out there into the world, don't divide what he died to unify. Don't divide what he died to bring in. Don't, don't take these hierarchies. Don't support these hierarchies. Don't bring these hierarchies into the world that, that don't belong in the kingdom of God. We want the whole world to come into the kingdom of God and to find a home in the family of God. So we need to be welcoming people. We need to be reaching people for Christ and giving them all a place to belong and helping them grow in their faith, helping them learn to trust and follow Jesus to trust and obey. And we're better together. We are better together. We are so much better together. When we trust God together, when we love God and love each other, and we trust God and trust each other and trust God with each other, when we don't, you know, you, sometimes you're, not, you're wise not to trust certain people. But that doesn't mean you push them down to elevate yourself. It means you trust God with them. You trust God with them. And you say, hey, you know, they're in process. They're on their way we got to learn to trust God together because we were made for community. Do you realize that you were made in the image of God? Scripture tells us that way back. In Genesis 1, in the image of God, He created them. We were made in the image of God. And what do we know about God? God Himself is a community of divine love. We talk, we talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all part of the Godhead. And God exists as a community of divine love. And we were created in the image of this God who is a loving community. We were created for community, community with God and community with each other. We're better together. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for your word and the way that it speaks to us. We thank you for the opportunity to worship, to proclaim that you are our God, that you are our Savior, that we trust you to respond to your love in faith, to sing your praises. And God, help us to be a people who trust you together, who look to you together, who invite you into our lives together, who pursue you and follow you and obey you together. Move in us, Holy Spirit. Move through us, Holy Spirit. Speak to us now and help us to respond in faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray.